2: Hey everybody and welcome back to the Kodiak Shack podcast. Today we have Joey Aurora uh, from a ton of stuff, worked at AFWorks, worked at the Outpost and uh, here's a little bit of his background uh, that I think you'll enjoy. Joey believes that entre- entrepreneurship is a key to building a prosperous life for every human. As a VP of Growth at The Outpost, a boutique consulting firm, Joey helps companies win government contracts, especially in the defense arena. Some say contracting is boring. No way, says Joey. Every day he gets to enable the cool, innovative people who foster change and create access to capital and jobs that drive our economy. Previously, as a chief scaling officer for a government software program, DoD Platform One. He worked to streamline and scale operations to get commercial software approved to work on government networks within days and weeks instead of months and years. Joey is a proud Air Force veteran and still serves as an Air Force reservist on a mission to connect an ecosystem of entrepreneurs and innovators and accelerate results of Air Force culture change and technology adoption. He co founded AFWORKS, Air Force Innovation Program. He scaled tall buildings, or at least scaled AFWORKS, uh, from five to over 350 people. Along the way, he enabled over 100,000 airmen and founded over 2,422 companies uh, with 710 million. This led to the 530 prototype projects with 50 plus scaling to serve the strategic needs of the Air Force. He tailored the strategy around how the Air Force invests in small business. What else tells you Joey's story? He has started three companies, facilitated startup weekends, been a one million cups organizer, and is a grassroots ecosystem builder. He is mission-driven, passionate about innovation in government, cares deeply about entrepreneurship, architecting his own Lego creations, working out being under the Colorado sky where dreams come true and transforming everyday moments into memorable stories. Uh, Well, Joey, thanks for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Uh, Go ahead and tell us about yourself.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Uh, This is a fun place to be and it's also bringing sort of the end user perspective here in place. So thank you. Uh, You know, a little bit about me and, and sort of my background. I grew up in Denver, Colorado. I'm a CU Boulder alum. And actually pivotal to my Air Force story is the president's leadership class and then being a part of ROTC, Air Force ROTC at college. Uh, graduated from there, was in airfield operations for my first five years. I was stationed at Cannon in Barksdale, my training down in Mississippi, and then got the chance to deploy. I was in Bagram for six months. And actually in in that timeline right before I was deploying and while I was deployed, I uh, ran into a buddy that I was in college with, uh, Steve Walber. And he was telling me about how him and Austin and Chris were standing up uh, Accelerator in partnership with hopefully Techstars and wanting to build that out for the Air Force. Well, through some connections and engagement, they got connected with Lieutenant Colonel Dave Parton at the time, and he was putting together what we all now know as AppWorks. And it was about building a community, a, a movement inside of the Air Force of how do we drive innovation and right needs or fighter uh, and uh, i growing up in colorado and then being stationed in louisiana i got a really passion involved in the entrepreneurial scene started a couple of companies myself i cared deeply about the startup space and seeing companies grow and scale and so I got an opportunity to work with dave and steve and chris and the rest of the team and it was pretty phenomenal to see how that team was growing and say, Hey, we have a chance to shift the direction of the Air Force.
2: Well, that's awesome. And I, I think there's some. And now a word from our sponsor. CrowdBotics Defense is a data analytics software company serving the United States Air Force. They make it easy for active duty servicemen and women to turn their ideas into products and tag team DoD adoption. If you or someone you know has an idea for how tech can speed up your team, increase efficiency, or make your life easier, reach out to CrowdBotics Defense to talk it through. CrowdBotics Defense will help you define your project scope, timeline, and cost, and work with you to secure the budget you need to build it. Any product built and adopted by DoD will be credited to you as a collaborator. Reach out to Julian at CrowdBotics.com for help. That's Julian, J U L I A N, at CrowdBotics, C R O W D B O T I C S dot com. Also, there will be a link in the show notes. Everybody I talk to in the DoD sees inefficiencies that could be streamlined or rectified with the hard work of software engineers and people in the United States Air Force. So, work with Crowdbotics Defense to make a product that you are proud of and you're happy to work with? It's kind of enlightening. You know, when I when I finally spent 10 years in the Air Force and then learned about innovation at the very end, it was an entirely new side of the Air Force that I never knew existence existed. So what did what did AFWorks and the innovation kind of world of the Air Force look like when you got into it? And then how did you help it kind of transition into what we know it is today?
3: Yeah. Uh, in 2017, this was a very, very small, tiny community. There were, there were people who were pushing this community for work. Right? DIUX at the time was really at the forefront of saying, hey, we can drive a culture of innovation across the services and we can bring the right tech to the world better. Uh, at AppWorks, one of the things that we did a little differently was say, hey, this can happen at the airman level. Airmen are the ones that are closest to the problem and it was really about how do we build a model where we have those airmen connected to the right resources, the right champion, the right technology, and the right legal and PA support so that we can actually put stuff in combat faster.
2: And Yeah, I think. Oh, go ahead. Yeah.
3: Now, it, it was really about how do we build a movement, right? The, the idea of AFRICS was how do we empower airmen to execute and solve the warfighters' problems. And so in 2017, that that environment didn't really exist. By the time I left at the end of 2020, we had engaged with over 100,000 airmen and driven over 2,500 projects with over about $750 million. And about 50 of those have transitioned to programs of record. And honestly, that's actually a pretty good scale if you look at the transition rates of things over time. We had about 500 prototype projects, about 50 of those have transitioned. So you're looking at about a 10% success rate in transitioning to long-term programs with the Air Force. And But larger than that, it was the movement we put, that people felt like, hey, this is the Air Force that they are building each day. And they got a chance to work on it and make it better.
2: Well, I think we've all been a part of a program that had no end user input and then People are like, how am I supposed to use this? This doesn't help me do fix my daily job. So they are the people who should be putting up ideas to be innovated or to putting in input in a project that's gonna uh, affect their day to day in the future. So I mean, it makes total sense. So I love that it was created, and I was I was happy to to learn about it. So just to kind of give people um, who may not know that much about what AfWorks do is doing on a day to day, like as an AfWorks person, w- what are they doing? who are they talking with kind of how does that life, uh, happen for a person at AfWorks uh, in Austin or one of the locations?
3: Yeah. Uh, so just, just caveat, right? Like Afworks has changed and grown a lot since I've left, but yeah. the, the core intent and thesis of hey Works is supposed to help drive new projects and ideas forward. That is you know, Afworks is not a contracting shop where, Hey, this is where the central, uh, pot of innovation is, no, it's really meant to enable innovation to happen at scale across the Air Force. Uh, the original intent for when we started this was to help drive new ideas, test them out, Of like, hey, what are the best ways to get technology to the warfighter, and then help start scaling some of those programs so the big Air Force can take those on. Showing that there's different models that exist and can work within our Air Force was one of the key things that, that we were driving towards. You know, AppWorks today is, is broken out into the prime efforts uh, that are helping drive like agility prime or driving new technology, they're driving new technology areas. Uh, you still have the App Ventures team, which is driving, hey, how are we doing investments into small businesses and leveraging a lot of the SBIR, STTR program, which is now managed by AppWorks as well. And then you still have the Spark side, which is how you drive airman and powermen and enable to get more and more people taught about these methodologies. How do we get them involved in the process? How do they become those powerful end users that are giving voice to airmen opportunities, making things better on the ground?
2: Yeah. And I think I like that you use the metric of like, Hey, almost 10% of our programs became programs of record and get onboarded because you can't sit there and say, Hey, we didn't have a hundred percent success rate in these, you know, startup innovative ideas. And it's like, you shouldn't, like some of them aren't gonna pass the muster test. Like there is gonna be breakage, there is gonna be money spent that we may not get something for, but we're trying. And that 10% that do succeed makes all the difference in the world, I would assume.
3: Yeah, and I would also argue that, you know, you didn't get nothing. You got, you, you learned lessons, you failed fast, you failed cheaper than we are in, in other contracts. And you're building a a cadre of people, of soldiers, of airmen in the military who understand how to better execute on a project, how to iterate quickly, how to choose to shut down a project because it isn't aligned with where the Air Force mission set is going. And I would say that's even more valuable than the 10% of projects that did succeed because now we're building a culture of innovation inside of our Air Force where airmen understand or are learning to understand how they can drive projects to success and how they integrate them into their operations. And that I would argue is probably the most important thing that we're doing for the health and culture of our Air Force, people realizing that they can take an attempt at solving this problem. It may not work, but we can integrate it, we can try. And that speed of integration is probably the most important piece for winning our next fight.
2: I couldn't agree more. And I think in my short time in the military from 2011 uh, to now, there was an amazing change in not only the end users, but also leadership where you were told a lot of times like, hey, this is a broken process. How do, Why don't we fix this? And then you get told, well, that's just the way we do things. And you're like, that cannot be our answer that is a joke but nowadays you say this is a broken process how do we fix it and we have spark cells and there's collider events and there's companies and there's there's all these different ways to solve these problems or at least make attempts at solving these problems and then we realize either we can't solve that one that way or we find some workaround uh to make things uh more useful for the end user because i think there's there's so many opportunities to make changes because uh, for a long time, we weren't making changes. So there are a lot of areas that are ripe for that. Uh, so after you uh, kind of worked in Afworks and kind of understood that, I mean, AFWERX is working with a lot of like high level leadership, right? Like you're you're working with like SESs or, or general type people in an AFWERX space. Is that is that true?
3: I would actually say that AFWERX sort of works across the spectrum. It's about bridging that gap and helping drive that communication when we started appworks we actually were at, based out of the pentagon right efforts was unit in the pentagon working at 858 and and late 2020 appworks actually shifted and is based out of afrl as part of the research and driving new technology component uh, we purposely chose to stand up and engage with appworks at a headquarters level because if you wanted to drive change and you want to scale a different mindset and behaviors that happens with at a headquarters where those decisions are made. And then sort of clearing that line and pathway in the bureaucracy to shorten those cycles, speed up that engagement, and get more people involved. And you know, the funny thing is, and you've seen this again and again uh, in commercial industry as well, is that any innovative organization's lifespan is actually about 3.2 years before they're swallowed up by the bureaucracy. And so we've seen a little bit of that. With appworks moving to AFRL, but you're also seeing that, hey, they've now been able to scale and stabilize and do a lot of good things because they're getting that resource there. Uh, but I would also argue that, hey, it's also you know, there's a lost opportunity to keep driving that massive change across the organization when you don't have these change agents based out of headquarters.
2: Yeah, how would you say? Uh, and definitely not trying to throw spears more just kind of the perspective you gained. So obviously you have a lot of senior leaders who kind of have to sign off on these things. How, how were they receptive to this innovative changing dynamic onboarding of programs? Were they pretty much all on board and and ready to work with it or was a little bit of pulling teeth with some of them to kind of get them on board?
3: Yeah. uh, You know, you're, you'd love to imagine that hey everyone is on board and ready to go gunpowder on day one, but th- that building innovation and driving change requires uh, people to get uncomfortable. And you know I can remember a time where hey AppWorks was uh, you know, seen as very threatening to major programs and different functional staff within the Pentagon because people are always asking oh, wait hey, how are we going to have the money? to drive a new project and you know we, we took a look at some civil engineering projects and we got a lot of resistance initially from that community saying hey, we have no idea how we're going to pay for these capabilities or where where that sustainment is going to come from we have nobody managing that process we have no one looking at that so you if you're prototyping all of these things where is that going to go but it takes time where we, we got to build and engage in some of those discussions with SESs and general officers But they saying these are the outcomes that our airmen really want. These are the outcomes that are making their lives better. And these are the improvements that are in our mission effectiveness because of these capabilities we're bringing to the table. So we have to stop looking at how are we purchasing capability at, uh, from a, like hey, this is the organization and this is exactly what we need to, hey, we're purchasing this overall function that we want to have happen. Uh, how it happens, we're, we're open to it. And if we shift that mentality from saying we're purchasing this specific capability to saying, hey, we want to accomplish this and let's iterate on the best way to do so, you understand that, hey, there's a little bit of flexibility in that budget cycle. And I'd love to you know commend AppTech and that team now. They're doing a phenomenal job of actually reviewing all of the potential ideas that are coming in from airmen and they're actively engaging in that process because they they see the value now. And the people that are there, part of that team, are doing a phenomenal job of considering Hey, how can we actually move faster, uh, build faster, and how do we resource our airmen more appropriately? Uh, because now that they're involved in the process and they're saying, yeah, actually, you're right. Hey, we we do want to be more involved at the pace where airmen want to see change.
2: Well, I think that's, I mean, that's how you win anywhere, whether it's in the commercial sector, where whether it's in the military, whether it's at your own house, like getting everybody on board and wanting the same end goal is a great way to get people to work together. Uh, so I, I couldn't agree more. One thing that I think is, I, I kind of want to ask you this because this was something I saw in my short time in the innovation space where there, it was uh, in the F-16 community, they said, uh, really the pilot training pipeline, so from T-6s, T-38s, into F-16s or wherever they went, uh, the directive from AETC and 19th Air Force was, hey, let's get VR innovation going. So we're going to work on VR innovation. Let's use it to teach students and train them faster and more efficiently uh, and then in better produce a better product. And what we found was we ended up the initial stage was great because we would go out and we had a ton of different ideas. And then we kind of had a few ideas that were boiled down into kind of like the the best of breed, if you will. But then what we ain't never had was like a very good top down directive of like, this is how we're going to move forward. So then it was the more like, hey, we're all just kind of spiraling off into our own areas of innovation rather than using that kind of decentralized control and ex- or execution rather, and then centralizing the final product. Uh, how would you say, I don't know if you've had experience with that. Do you, do you see that happening? Like let's get the gr- ball rolling initially at the ground level and then move up the final uh, product to the top end. Is that how you imagine it?
3: Uh, that's definitely a technique. And yeah. that's one that I've seen used across the air force multiple times and it, there are a lot of challenges to driving that new change because that there's a larger imperative of hey we need to execute on the mission that we have today it's often seen as a, a no fail mission and it because it often is a no fail mission uh, and then we are executing combat operations using these using the F16s right so if you where are you going to integrate VR into that pipeline so that we're not disrupting what we know works. And often, right, there's no program office for VR in 2017. Uh, that would, I, There is today with DET23 because because of Spark Tank, because of what stood up with LOTAR, DET23 is helping drive uh, VR and A, AR training across the Air Force. But you know, if you look at the F-16 spell, uh, that's not something that, hey, where what are they considering is who's their AI ML expert, who's their maintenance expert on how are we doing additive manufacturing into the technologies, uh, you know what is the next generation technology that it, that SPO has a mission to maintain that program office right they're they're maintaining F16 they want to make sure it's taken care of where in there is we haven't charged them with this mission set to say go find the next cutting edge technology that's going to cut down your time. Yeah. And it's about shifting that mindset and saying, hey, actually, program office, this is a core responsibility for you. So we can continue improving on our mission effectiveness. It's not just about sustainment. It's about improving that capability and delivery. And how are you speeding up those cycle times? So when you're talking about, hey, like, how do we include VR in V F sixteen? 16 It's about how are we actually thinking about what resourcing we're doing and training that pipeline and how are we... Accelerating that with having the right people in place, and that that will require and does require us to take people off of existing mission sets and assume some of that risk, so that we can buy down the the training pipelines or times or work later as well.
2: Well, I think that's one of the tough things. You know, if you know everybody is is overworked and there's not enough people in every shop, you know, and so it's very difficult to get the, hey, I need you to spend time away from your primary mission to try to innovate ways to better do the mission in the future, and you're like, oh, that, that's a tough ask. If people don't have that long-term view of, hey, this is, this is a greater good than today, uh, one of the things that I've always wondered, because it seems like there's a lot of difficulty getting a program of record like actually somebody owning a product so it's it seems easy to kind of get products into the super one super twos and then once it's like all right this is a program that we're going to use indefinitely how do we do that and you know i was on a conference call one time and it was like all right you know everybody's talking everybody has inputs and the moment someone's like okay so who's going to own this program and it was like every person just didn't you know their mic stayed on mute and uh so what would you say is is something that is currently done that I'm unaware of, or could be done better on taking companies from an innovative idea to an actual program that people uh, can use and in, in contract and all those kind of things.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And the yeah. AppWorks team and the Air Force team are doing a lot to how do we actually increase those those resources and transition. But one of the the core things you have to to look at and do is actually pull in those program offices and those requirement owners early. So when you're building that prototype, when you're saying, hey, this is what we want to test, they need to be involved in that process and bought in and say, actually, yeah, that is something we're supporting that we want to see the outcomes of that. We need to decide key metrics of what is the decision point going to be to integrate that capability. And the other Thing I challenge you on is that you aren't actually integrating something in indefinitely. That capability is going to be integrated maybe in for one year, four years, eight to 10 years while we're sustaining uh, combat capabilities. But I'd argue that whatever technology or capability is going to exist in 10 to 12 years from now, there's going to be a better way to do it. And we have to shift from this mentality like, hey, we're, you know, we're maintaining the B 52 for. 50 plus years and we're going to for another 30, uh, according to our current documents, well, yes, we are, but at the same time, know, we're looking at re-engineering the aircraft, we're looking at how do we have better radar systems, you know, we're putting better pods on the the aircraft so we can have better tools to do our counter drug missions or additional mission sets that we're looking at, and we're launching hypersonics off of uh, B B-52. So you, we have to think about hey you know, maybe sustaining a legacy platform. It might be over a 30-year time horizon. Uh, technology is moving a lot faster. So we need to be looking at, hey, what is the prototype or next next problem set that we can get ahead of and solve? Can you bring in that requirements owner early in that process? Have an open and frank, honest discussion with them. If you're an airman inside of the Air Force that's working on one of these projects and you want to see the, the growth and development of that to the... De- the so transition to be a capability that your functionals or requirements owners are purchasing, then what you should be doing is bringing them into the conversation, asking them to be a part of it, right? And, and you know, it might feel weird for an airman to start saying, How do I engage with the Matchcom? or how do I engage with the requirements owner? Uh, but that's that's the structure and conversations we need to be having, right? Match are there to organize, train, and equip, and those program offices are there to sustain and we need to tie those conversations together more and more that really just happens by that outreach building those relationships and communicating there's going to be more and more tools out there like tech connect and uh, better capabilities that are being built to connect those folks but it's going to be a relationship at the end of the day and it's about understanding you want to involve those people and organizations and what we're
2: Yeah. No, I love that. And I think that's exactly right. The more connections, more conversations, more people understanding kind of throughout the chain of command, what is actually trying to be achieved is, is the way to kind of, to make it happen. So, uh, Joey, what are some good, uh, kind of innovation things that are success stories that, that, uh, people would like to hear about?
3: Yeah. One of the two things that recently happened that I'd love to to highlight the, Air Force did a helmet challenge over the last uh, helmet solicitation over the last, say, 40 years. Uh, out of those 40 years, uh, we actually haven't picked or designed a new helmet uh, because the same prime kept coming back and saying, yep, this is the only helmet we can design. Uh, well, at, while I was at Afrox, we uh, did something called the helmet challenge. And that team did a phenomenal job of reaching out to non-traditional vendors. So we're talking about the folks that make the most advanced bicycle helmets to NFL helmet makers, to a molar microphone, to a, uh, fantastic shell lining that helped, uh, keep heat, uh, at, uh, reduce that heat transfer. And, uh, we, that competition ran through, this was almost three years ago and, uh, they actually selected 10 companies to build three different prototypes. And one of those was the the previous prime. Uh, Recently, I learned that after operational flight tests and eval, and after going through the entire process, there's actually been a brand new set of companies that have come together and won the helmet contract for the entire Air Force. So they've now scaled uh, and said, hey, that that helmet is going to be the next generation helmet for the entire Air Force. And so what we're talking about is through bringing together non-traditional companies, we have now completely changed the game in the helmet space. There's now an incumbent that is lost. And they've said, hey, we actually learned a lot from this process. And the Air Force has better technology for our warfighters, lighter, uh, stronger, and more helpful helmet for our combat operators. And so that was a phenomenal story to see that, hey, that has gone all the way full cycle from beginning, from testing out, bringing in new ideas and companies all the way through the process. And then a second amazing thing I'd love to to highlight is that the Government Accountability Office did a report on the Air Force Open topic, uh, which we were a core part of reauthoring and saying, hey, we actually want to bring in new technologies and not prescribe a requirement. Let companies tell us what we might want. And that report actually highlighted that the Air Force Open Topic has done a phenomenal job in bringing in new companies that have about 70 percent of them have never worked with the DOD before. So increase the types of companies that are engaging with the military and more of those companies are actually transitioning the technologies because the focus is on dual use technology. And then with the matching programs, more of those companies are transitioning to long term opportunities with the Air Force. And so it's been amazing to see that, hey, the theories and ideas we put in place and practice at AFWorks are now, you know, there's reports and GAO even came in like, hey, that's actually a pretty good tool you've created. And so there's a lot of validation that's happening now and seeing like a new helmet being created and a new report in place. That's highlighting the work that was
2: done. That's awesome. One, I think one of the things is, you know, I've said it before, like, I don't know what I don't know. So the fact that we always have to define exactly what we're asking for as a military member, you're like, we don't even know what exists out there. How am I supposed to define what I'm asking for? I'd rather just let smart people say like, look at this, this is very cool. And you're like, that's right. That is cool. And, uh, as somebody who, I mean, I have almost 1500 hours, just flying the F-16, but pretty much every single sortie I've flown is with a helmet. Uh, and I tell you what, it's not my favorite helmet on the planet. Uh, and the, the reality is it's, and I, I get it. I mean, we're buying hundreds of helmets and all these things and they can't make them fit every person's like nugget. But the problem is I am like an extra large length and a large width. So there's no good. It's either I wear the large and it doesn't fit over the bottoms of my ears and I just get jet noise or I wear the extra large and it shakes around on my nugget like I'm some five-year-old wearing his dad's hat. Uh, So I love the idea and the reality that helmets are changing and we're, we're not just, again, looking at something and saying, well, it used to be done this way. It's probably fine. People are challenging that status quo and saying, I bet better things can come out of this. So that's awesome.
3: Yeah, well, I hey mean, we should get you one of these new helmets sooner than later, man.
2: I need it. Yeah, they—if they need a test fit, send them my way because I'm—I'm I'm probably the anomaly, but I need a helmet. So.
3: Yeah. Well, let's see what we can do. We'll connect offline yeah. about that.
2: <laughs> so then, as you're kind of uh, transitioning out of the AF space, you end up working at Outpost. So, can you can you talk about how that transition kind of worked out, and then what at, at the Outpost is working on?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So actually it took about a, a year between uh, Half-Works and the outpost. I actually went to platform one for a little bit to help them scale operations and see how does that like growth change because I, mean, I am passionate about how do you solve the ATO authority to operate problem uh, for the Air Force and the DOD at large. And that was a great place to go and do that. And then I actually came over to the outpost because I still am deeply passionate about that intersection between technology, national security, and capital. And at the outpost, I'm the VP of growth. And, you know, here we get a chance to help companies understand how to do it right. A friend of mine put this pretty well, they framed it really well for me. And that was, hey, we helped build some of the systems inside of the Air Force. And, you know, we're we're trying to scale those across a massive enterprise and teach other people how to do that. And now I didn't get a chance to keep doing that in the Air Force uh, because as a reservist, you could have that time, say, on for order three years at a time. And now it was looking at, well, I want to keep doing this, and I can help companies do that right and help them scale. And so why shouldn't we be diving into helping execute these programs really, really well and get the right tech to warfighters? And you know, that's what we're really about at the outpost, is getting the right tech to the warfighters.
2: Well, I like that. And then before we kind of move on into that, um, uh, so an ATO, can you kind of just do a deeper dive into, cause if people don't understand, obviously what an ATO is or, or what the restrictions are and the rigors associated with like a platform one, uh, approval, uh, can you just kind of give people that background?
3: Yeah, uh, that can be a, a whole episode in itself, <laughs> uh, but at a, you know, a 32nd high level, the authority to operate the ATO is a requirement for any company that is engaged with the Department of Defense information system. So if you're hosting, processing any data that is relevant to the Department of Defense, there are requirements that you have to meet to meet cybersecurity standards. And as you're looking at how do you get an authority to operate, that process right now takes 12 to 18 months and one to $1.5 million dollars. Uh, and platform one has, you know, we bring that down by an order of magnitude and now there are commercial companies doing that as well. So, you know, we have a great partnership with the second front team and the Game Warden project to help get companies and ATO through that pipeline. And we're happy to help the folks connect it there. And it's, mm-hmm. a, there's now a commercial pathway to drive to uh, the authority to upgrade. And also, you know, if a government partner says, Hey, we want to get you on platform one and improve out those capabilities there's ways to prototype that with the party bus environment as well.
2: Nice. And I think that's one of the people that, you know, if if they don't understand kind of what that means is every company on their own is trying to meet some, you know, AFI or air force, you know, information or reg that says you must meet these criteria where platform one kind of enables people to spend less time trying to meet the requirements and more time on building good products uh for the end user. So it same, saves time, it saves money. Uh so I mean it it's a great uh it was a great idea and it seems like it's a great product. So I'm I'm excited that, that uh is a reality. Uh so at the outpost um on a kind of day to day like what are you working on and then you know how how are you kind of getting those commercial companies uh kind of ready to work with the DoD and then, you know, end users and all that kind of stuff.
3: Yeah, absolutely. We we partner with companies to help them understand where the BD relationships are at. Who do they need to be engaging with? How do they need to interact with those folks? Facilitating introductions through our network as well. We're a team of about 20 folks and growing. And, you know, for our portfolio, we're engaging with how do we help identify which relationships those companies need to go and get involved with. We're looking at how do we help understand what set of requirements are coming up, right? There's a lot of those shared publicly at events and engagements with the Air Force or the rest of the DoD. So we help uh, companies understand who those target markets are. Uh, We're helping them shape those proposals and helping them write those proposals understanding what the evaluation criteria are and helping get that in front of uh, submission timelines. And we're partnering with them to understand hey, how do you develop milestones, uh, whether this is for an SBIR phase one to uh, TACFI stratify uh, with the Air Force, uh, to working commercial solutions openings, other transactions or uh, sole source opportunities across the DOD and federal government Uh, We've done business with the Air Force, the Army, the Navy, the Space Force, uh, Coast Guard, Department of Homeland Security, uh, DARPA, NASA, Department of Energy. Keep going. Uh, We have done work across a lot of the federal government. And we do a lot of work with other transactions, SBIRs, or solutions openings, broad area announcements. You You sort of name the type of contract vehicle, right, helped over 250 companies, went over $350 million in contracts over the last three years.
2: That's awesome. And how would you say your perspective, uh, having been, you know, working on the innovation side from the military member, now you get to view it from the outside looking in, Uh, how has your perspective changed just of the processes and, you know, the overall picture of the innovation space?
3: Yeah, I would say that my feelings and thoughts towards how fast we need to move, uh, how aggressive we need to be, have only uh, increased uh, in um, those feelings of sort of doubled down and seeing what happens on the commercial side. Like we need better communication. We need to engage more often and and early. Uh, We need to help integrate tech and be more transparent about, The process. The government spends a lot of time uh, meeting compliance checks. And those are important to make sure we create a fair and level playing field. Uh, But we need to be able to move faster if we want to compete in the world that exists today. And we need to be able to meet those compliance requirements and engage with vendors and new technologies within, within 60 days. Yeah. And we need to be able to get a yes or a no is the other thing, right? There there needs to be a uh, sometimes and often the answer is going to be no that this technology is not what we need to grow and scale. And so the, those nos need to be clear and plain as well.
2: Yeah, and I that is important. I think that's the true definition of leadership. Like leadership isn't always just coddling and enabling and helping people. It's sometimes telling people no you know, and you kind of have to do that from time to time as, you know, in the, just any leadership role. Um, Would you say, I I have my assumption just talking with other companies that the onboarding of the military, really the DOD, because again, there's so many constraints uh, that are realistic and and understandable that it is hard for the DOD to move as quickly as commercial companies uh, when in development, production, and then Implementation. Would you say that's an accurate statement?
3: I would not, actually. Okay. I would say that we've shown and proven that the military can drive requirements and timelines faster than the commercial world. That's cool. You've seen that through sort of the Defense Production Act. We've seen that in the response to COVID. We've seen that in the response to how we galvanize the industrial base. When we have a massive requirement, uh with it an urgent need, right? Like the response to Ukraine and developing what they ghost phoenix drones, right? Being able to put that on contract, being able to start delivering this new drone capability to Ukraine was something that was done in a matter of months. And it was built off of ideas and projects that have been in place. But the ability to put things on contract when there is a will there is a way and the military has the most resources compared to anyone else and we have amazingly talented smart and brilliant people are, are in the us air force and you know, this is there is the opportunity to move that fast I would, i would say that you know, we probably don't need to move that fast 100 percent of the time but we probably need to start Accepting that level of uh, risk in moving that fast, uh, a majority of the time across the Air Force, we need to be able to accept that hey, we have to develop programs and keep them under budget. We have to hold our, our large primes to maintaining and delivering a specific capability. And I think they're doing a great job with that in the B-21 program and all the unclassified reports we're seeing, right? It's coming in early and under budget. And when we leverage modern techniques for digital engineering and for uh, requirements development, right? we can stay flexible. and We can de- deliver things faster and on time. And that should be the minimum expectation for the companies that the U.S. military decides to work with. We need to cut off those contracts faster when they aren't delivering.
2: Yeah. No. Well, and I, I appreciate you said that because one of the things I love about the podcast is it is it challenges my perspective. It change, you know, gives me the opportunity to learn from the people I'm talking to who have way more experience than I do. Uh, so it's good to see that just because it was my initial assumption doesn't make it, it doesn't mean it's reality. So I I love that you kind of provided that insight because, I mean, this is good. This is what we're trying to do is kind of break down some of those assumptions that people are making because they're not actually in those meetings or they're not a part of that onboarding or the production of stuff. And, you know, one person's bad experience doesn't make the, you know, doesn't mean that everyone has had that same experience. Uh, so I dig that. That's, uh, that's been one of the exciting things It's just every day is a new adventure and uh, it's just exciting to learn about all of these things. Uh, what would you say kind of over the years, you know, being active due to military, getting into AFWorks, now working at Outpost, what was one of the things that was, very impactful to you that you were like, wow, this, this has changed my perspective and my, you know, approach to things.
3: Yeah. Well, first set uh, to your point, Peter, that you're talking to a, an eternal optimist, right? So I, <laughs> I, 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 know we can, I believe we can, and I've seen, we can. So uh, mm-hmm. I, that's why I, I was willing to challenge that and say, yeah, they, we are capable of doing that. And well, I appreciate we, it because so. uh, yeah.
2: you know, Pilots get the whole, the rap of being, uh, you know, just your complainers, you know, and, and for good reason, pilots complain a lot. Uh, so, yeah. but I, you don't want it to tarnish everything, even the good things. Uh, so we need our eternal op- optimists. So I appreciate that.
3: Yeah, not a problem. And then, you know, you're asking, Hey, what's, what's something that's changed my perspective uh, going through active duty and Atworks and uh, now on the commercial side. And I would say, A big shift for me has been recognizing how interdependent the commercial world and the Department of Defense are. And it's not something that we probably talk about often, but the development of those new technologies, the shrinking of the defense industrial base over the last few decades uh, is scary but at the same time, seeing the growth of industry across the United States uh, gives me hope. And you know, we're, we're starting to see amazing tech hubs for carbon fiber manufacturing existing in Utah. And that's because people who are making bike frames are also the same ones that can be making carbon structures for use in the US military. You're seeing additive manufacturing hubs being stood up across the United States. You're seeing digital engineering hubs being stood up. And these are not in the big cities that you would normally think of. But what, one of the biggest change things that gives me hope is that across the United States, there's these different communities that are leaning into their core capabilities. Being a Colorado gentleman, I yeah, love seeing Colorado lean into the space technology and the, the development of the those capabilities, and there's probably more space companies in Colorado than uh, almost anywhere else. And uh, you're seeing that development happen because they're fostering an ecosystem that that cares a lot about that and bringing the right talent in place. And so, you know, what what have I seen that surprised me and is changing is that the the United States is going to a place where every community is going to specialize in specific area whether it's charleston and biotech colorado and space tech you're going to find different hubs across the united states in places you wouldn't expect and that we're going to be bringing back capability development here to the united states and that's going to be one of our differentiating factors for the next generation
2: that's awesome and that stuff again i i didn't have that understanding or even exposure to that information and i think that's great because like you said, with, I mean, B-52 is an extreme example, but even F-16s, F-15s, these jets are 30 years old, 40 years old, Uh, you know? So we're talking about the company that was initially commissioned to produce products for these airplanes went out of business 20 years ago. Uh, So the fact that we're creating opportunities to build those things at home, to make us more self-reliant, to give us more opportunities to produce good products. And really, like you said, like lengthening the timeline for our current and tested platforms to continue, you know, for much longer than they were ever expected. I mean, I think the F-16 rolled off the, the first F-16s rolled off the factory with 2000 flight hours expected to be on them. And now, you know, the average F-16 has like six or 8,000 flight hours. So, I mean, the game has changed and the reality is like, we have to change with it as technology gets better. And as our abilities get better, we can't just, Oh, we used to do this. So we're con- going to continue doing it. Uh, so I think that's great. And I'm super jealous here in Colorado because, uh, I've always, I've only been to Colorado a couple of times, but every time it was just a, a wonderful experience. So, uh, so I, I'm glad you're enjoying it for me because I'm. Uh, I mean, California's not bad, but you know, in my eyes, it's not a Colorado. That's for sure.
3: Yeah, Colorado's home. Spent a lot of time in D.C. too, but
2: oh so yeah. Do you good. have to travel a lot for the uh, for the outpost, or are you traveling for a lot of reasons?
3: I travel for a mix uh, of reasons, right? I have family in Colorado, works in D.C., and uh, I like traveling, exploring new places, seeing friends. Uh, so that's that's why I'm out and about usually. But I want to hit back on that point, right? This isn't the way that we used to do things. This isn't the the military that we joined. This is the military that we built every day. And I say we because it's a large team of folks who are active duty reserves, uh, guard, civilian side, contractor side. Every day, this is the and used to say, well, Zapras isn't the Air Force you join, it's the Air Force you build. And I, I strongly believe that in how we show up each and every day and how we engage with the world around us. We have a chance to make those things better. And it's that culture shift that will keep America strong.
2: Yeah, I agree. And I think when I joined, you know, almost 12 years ago now, this right here, this conversation, you know, sitting here, even creating a podcast, talking about the innovative nature of the military. It wasn't even on my radar. It wasn't even something I imagined that was part of the military. You know, you think military, fly, fight, win. You know, you go to war, you do stuff like that. And now we realize, like, it is very important that we spend the time and the effort now, today, working on products that will be available if, you know, and when something does happen in the future. So... I appreciate people like yourself who have spent many years in the innovation space making it better and then just helping get companies and people and programs to end users. So I, I love it and I appreciate that you took the time to uh, chat with me today. Uh, Joey, if there's a way you want people to reach out and uh, contact you, whether for the outpost or just to tell you that uh, that you rock, let them know how to, to reach out.
3: Well, they should be reaching out to you saying you rock. First of all, yeah. uh, but if, if folks want to reach out and chat about any of this stuff, uh, feel free to reach out on LinkedIn, Joey Aurora. You can also reach me at joey at theoutpost.cloud or my number is 720 235 8045. So give me a ring.
2: Yeah, awesome. No prank calls, everybody. But uh, And then you know how to contact us. So uh, info at KodiakShack.com and then uh, check out our website, KodiakShack.com. Donations are always open and uh, we always want feedback from people. If you'd like to be on the show, hit us up at our email that I just said. And uh, we'd love to chat with you and hear the cool things you're working on. Uh, And we're going to do this for uh, hopefully many, many years in the future. Uh, Hey, thanks for coming on the show, Joey.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
2: All right, see you.